Amen. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. If you, if you have your Bible or your phone or your iPad or whatever, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. We are, we are uh, getting towards the end of the, the Gospel of Mark here. Just a few more weeks until uh, Easter, which, which is when we'll end our, our series in, in Mark. We started uh, at, just after last Easter, so going through a year of it. And um, today we get to see kind of the, like the summit of the, the story. So if you're thinking about the, the gospel of Jesus, his life and his ministry, it's been kind of building, 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 building until this moment um, that, that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Um, it's, it's where Jesus uh, fulfilled his mission. Okay, that, that's what we're looking at today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verses 16 uh, through 24. And it's, and it's kind of crazy to think that Easter is just like two weeks away, right? Like two weeks from today. Um, it kind of hit me this week as I was, as I was getting, getting ready for the sermon uh, that Easter's two weeks away, and if you say that now, even if it catches is that okay? Is that working online? Sorry, guys. Some of our at-home folks want to hear, okay, great, great, okay, all right. All right, let's all just talk amongst ourselves for a second, <laughs> awkwardly. Take this thing off. Okay, so I'm going to hold this, even though it's not working in the room. (laughs) This is good. This is good. This is fine. This is fine. This is fine. So, um, and my wife might go into labor any minute, too. So if that happens, if, if that happens, whoa, hey, all right, look at God go. Man, okay, all right, I'm not going to try the head, headset anymore. I'm just going to stick with this for the day. All right, we got batteries, great, great. So for today, I want to answer two questions, okay? Forget my intro, that's long gone, okay? Uh, here are two questions I, I want to try to answer uh, and I want us to, to think about today. Number one, why did Jesus have to die? Okay, much less on a cross, like, like, if you're wondering about the specifics of the story, when we get to this, as Jesus coming, like he said, he came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many, okay? Why, why did he have to die, much less on a cross? And then the second question I want to answer today is why should we care about the cross now? Because, because we're 2,000 years later, we're, we're living this story, right? We're, we're reading the story of Jesus. We're looking at the crucifixion in hindsight, knowing how it ends, right? Knowing that he raises from the dead and that uh, we don't have to despair because of his death on the cross. Let, 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 so as, with those two questions in mind, Mark chapter 15, pick it up in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spat on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country. And when they forced him, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. So with those two questions in mind, why did Jesus have to die, much less on a cross, and why, why should we still care about the cross today? Um, in the words of Christopher Wright, Christopher Wright's one of my, one of my favorite uh, Bible theologians. He's a professor at seminary. He wrote a book called The Mission of God, and he says this. He said, the cross was the unavoidable cost of God's mission. See, Jesus died to fulfill God's mission. God's mission, if, you, if you're wondering what that is, here, here's in a nutshell, the story of the Bible, in a nutshell, after Genesis chapter three, answers the question, what can God or what will God do about the sin of humans? See, God's mission is to reconcile his creation back to himself. See, Jesus died because we, as humans, must be reconciled back to God. Because since the beginning of humanity, we humans have sinned. It's kind of a, the Bible kind of, in a, on a really large scale, was kind of broken up in kind of a fourfold narrative, kind of, kind of four pieces of a story. There was creation, there was the fall, which is where sin entered God's good world. God created everything and said, it is good. He created humans and said, you are very good. And then sin entered, so there's creation, there's fall, there's redemption, which is all of that kind of in-between from, from the first time humans sinned, Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, to Jesus coming and, and what Jesus accomplished, redemption. And then the fourth part is the future hope that we have, which is as we get closer to Easter, we're going to look at why the future hope means so much to us. That's kind of the fourth part. And see, the reason why we have to be reconciled to God, the reason why Jesus had to die, right? Like, like if you've ever grown up in church or maybe you just heard Christians talk about this stuff or you've heard people preaching and they're talking about sin and, and how Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for sin is death. It's because God created a good world and in God's good world, sin was a foreign object. God did not create the world for sin to exist in it. Now, I know this brings up questions. You can say, what about the problem of evil, the existence of that stuff? The Bible does answer those questions, but it doesn't speak to it specifically because the default kind of framework for the Bible is that God created a good world and his, his goal, his mission, is to get sin out and redeem and heal and restore everything that's been affected by sin. Right, Because we have sinned, Paul says in, in Romans 3, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, The glory, another way to kind of phrase that is God's goodness made visible. And the, the glory that humans were made to share with God, we now fall short of that because of sin. So Paul goes on to say, he says that, that God presented Jesus. So why did Jesus have to die? God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Okay, the word atonement, it literally means like a bring near gift. It's a gift that you bring near to God in order to be brought near. Okay, so, so God presented Jesus 
as a sacrifice of coming close through the shedding of his own blood to be received by faith. God did this to demonstrate that, that his righteousness at the present time as to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. See, because, because God's world was good, he created it, and sin is a foreign object that does not belong in God's world. Because sin entered and exists, death is the natural outcome. Because sin's got to get out. Sin doesn't belong in God's good world. God's good creation, untarnished by sin, was then tarnished by sin, so God is just. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. And so that's where Jesus comes into play. Jesus comes in. John, after, as Jesus was coming to be baptized, declares him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had to die, and Jesus had to die on the cross to take away the sin of the world. But, but here's what's interesting, because as we've been looking through the, the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, we get to this point, and we already know, like, like we've seen it as we've gone through verse by verse for the last almost full year, is that Jesus, he came and he had the power over death and sin, right? Like he came and there was a little girl, 12 years old, who died and Jesus raised her back to life. He had raised Lazarus back from the dead. He also had authority and power over the things that were outcomes of death, disease, natural disasters, demonic activity. Jesus had powers over this. So we might just think, like, why, like why couldn't Jesus just bypass the bad stuff? Like, like, wouldn't Jesus, by just going through and, like, overstepping the death, accomplish the same thing? And it really doesn't because sacrifice, that atonement sacrifice, is the way that, that the world has always worked. It's, it's life for life. And because sin, that foreign object, entered into God's good world, Jesus chose and voluntarily died to pay the price for our sins so that we as humans can be close to God. Paul, uh, meditating on this later in 2 Corinthians, says, he, became, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So sitting here today, we're able to sit here because Jesus died on the cross and he did it voluntarily. I love John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, kind of says it like this. He says, Jesus didn't die, he was killed. But at the same time, he wasn't killed, he died. Okay, that, that sounds, that sounds uh, like it's contradictory, but if you think about it, Jesus didn't go and just randomly die off in the desert by himself and no one knew about it. He voluntarily sacrificed his life, handed it over to Israel's enemies to be killed to pay that price. But at the same time, he, was, he died at their hands, but he did it willingly. He offered. He could have at any moment, having the power over sin, having the power over death, he could have easily just snapped his fingers and it had been done, right? Thank you. Feedback. Amen. He could have done that. But I, I would, but I would guess, like I, I would guess that most of us in the room have heard this before. Maybe we believe this. We don't have a problem with that. We understand, yes, Matt, that's why I'm here. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin so that I can be reconciled to him and live a life with him. I, I would guess most of us in the room believe that, and that's why we're here at church. But like I said, we're thinking of this story in hindsight. 
Because it's really important that, that we remember the context of the story and we put ourselves in the situation to the audience that was reading this and the people that were going through this. Because think about it like, the Romans did what they did to Jesus because they thought they put an end to this movement of this, of this so-called Messiah, right? To them, they would have thought Jesus was a pretty sorry Messiah, the king of the Jews, right? This guy who had come and created kind of this local, like, civil unrest, and they thought it was over. I mean, the disciples, at this point, Peter's denied him, and we see in the Gospel of John that John, out of all of his disciples, is the only one who is at the cross. All the rest of Jesus' disciples had scattered, and that doesn't just mean the 12 that, that we might know by name. A lot of times in the Gospels when it talks about the disciples, it's talking about like the 70 or more people that followed Jesus consistently. And there's one guy left at the cross seeing his teacher, his rabbi, this man that he's followed around for three years and lived with and ate with, traveled with, seen perform miracles, is on the cross. And standing beside John is the mother of Jesus, who gave birth to Jesus, who fed Jesus, who, who when Jesus was 12 years old, lost him traveling back to their hometown and went back to Jerusalem and saw him at the temple. Jesus, his mother, is standing the cross watching her son be killed. And so when we're asking the question, we may have that knowledge of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, but let's remember when we put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are witnessing this and going through this with Jesus, they're wondering, is there going to be an importance of this? Is, this, is anything gonna happen after today? And so for us, we look at that second question. We're gonna spend the, the rest of the time kind of looking at that second question. What does the cross have to do with my life today? What does the cross have to do with my life today? Because for a lot of us, if we're honest, we're in this room because we believe that first part. We, we have this kind of mental knowledge and we understand what Jesus did, what he accomplished for us. We, we, we recognize the good news of Jesus is that we no longer have to be slaves to sin and death, but we can live a life for Jesus and with Jesus now on earth and then forever. But we may have a hard time answering the question, does the cross, does what Jesus did on the cross actually affect my day-to-day -day life? Because like the people who are witnessing Jesus go through this, we may be asking ourselves a question, man, does Jesus have anything for me today? Man, does what I'm witnessing, does the death of Jesus, the, the, the being beaten and murdered and hung on a cross, does that mean anything for me? And if it does, how? Why should I care? Here's why I think it does. Here's what we're gonna talk through for the next few minutes. The suffering that Jesus endured at the hand of his enemies and his death on the cross is proof that the goodness of God cannot be stopped. That it cannot be stopped. That the grace, the love, the mercy, the goodness that was found with him in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked before sin came into God's good world, the cross is actually proof that those things cannot be stopped, that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of darkness and death and sin 
are retreating as the kingdom of God is advancing. So here's, here's, here's three ways we're going to talk about today as we look in the story that, that we see that the cross is proof that the goodness of God can't be stopped. The first one is that we know the goodness of God can't be stopped by systems of oppression. That's the first way. We know that, that, the, that the goodness of God, because of the cross, cannot be stopped by systems of oppression. Now think about what the Roman guards were doing here. They, they were doing, the Roman guards were doing like what they had been trained, what they had been taught, what they had been charged to do, which is primarily support and secure the power and the might of the emperor and his empire. Okay, so that, that's what they thought they were doing, right? In their mockery, in their beating, the Roman guards, like, like they were doing what they were trained to do. They were doing their jobs, which was essentially to oppress and suppress any kind of political and military might that might come against their kingdom, their empire, okay? So they hold the whole, the way the Roman empire, the, why it was so successful in taking over the majority of the known world at their time is because of how good they were at making sure people who were lower than them and less powerful than them and less rich than them were oppressed to the point where they couldn't grow and, and, and challenge them at all. Right? They devoted their lives, they devoted this whole system of government, they created this whole kind of system to oppress people and keep them and Jesus, this man who is a so-called king of the Jews, right? Remember, that's a false accusation to begin with. Jesus didn't say that about himself. They had to come up with a plan and call Jesus that in order to get him crucified, right? What they were doing is that they thought they could continue on in their systems of oppression and, and snuff out Jesus in his movement. But since, here's the thing. We've been talking about this the whole time, kind of the contrast of, of the kingdom of Jesus versus the kingdom of man, right? Since the beginning, Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He starts going around and recruiting rejects and the sick, the people who weren't allowed in society, right? He goes around and he starts healing people, casting demons out from people, all the people that had been left behind. He, start, he gets a ragtag group of disciples that couldn't even figure out how to run a proper outreach event, right? Like Jesus is like, hey guys, I'll show you how to feed people, okay? He breaks the bread and fish, feeds everyone, and then, and then like a week later, they're like, hey Jesus, everybody's hungry. He's like, well, you feed them. Like, I just showed you how to do it, now you do it. And they're like, I don't know. You know, like, I mean, this is who, these are the people that Jesus gathered to him. He, he wasn't interested in going around and, and doing what empires of the world had done by recruiting the best and the brightest and the biggest and the strongest and the greatest. He was interested in proving that true exaltation comes through humiliation. He was interested in teaching us that receiving power comes through actually giving everything away, even your own life, right? I mean, think about what Paul said in, in Philippians 2. There was a hymn going around in the early church that Paul writes down where he said, Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did that, God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every, now, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those, those last few verses in that hymn about the knees bowing and the tongues confessing, uh, that comes from Isaiah 45, where Isaiah, in a prophetic word, is, is proclaiming the Messiah that is to come the one who's to come and restore Jerusalem, restore Israel, bring God's people back to himself to see the blessing of Abraham that God promised to finally be fulfilled to all of the nations. And he says, every knee and every, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What he's doing in there, if you go on to read those verses in Isaiah that come after that, it's saying, it was basically Paul's way of saying that because of the humility and the sacrifice of Jesus, he was found to be the one in whom they would say, in the Lord alone is my deliverance and my strength. And even though the nations have raged against him, which is exactly what Rome is doing here against Jesus, that they will be put to shame, and anyone who places their faith in him will have deliverance. See, because even though Jesus, at the hands of his enemies, was being tortured, beaten, crown of thorns pressed on his head, put on a cross with nails through his hands and his feet, that they mocked him, calling him king of the Jews, and they spit on him, and they hit him, and they put a purple robe on him. They thought they were continuing and perpetuating their power and might through, through force and through power, they considered equality with God a thing to be used to their own advantage. Jesus refused that, and in doing so, he saw that his kingdom could not be stopped. That no matter how much, how evil, how wrong systems of the world and systems of oppression that we face in this life, Jesus, his death on the cross, proves that when we place our faith in him, even though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And we get to be a part of that as people who have placed our faith in Jesus and found his deliverance. Because he even said, right, his kingdom is like this. If we, as we place our faith in Jesus and we take his yoke upon us, he says, any of you who are weary and heavy laden, Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for it's easy and my burden is light. And the cross, his death at the hands of his enemies proves that we don't have to live in fear of these broken worldly systems, but that we can live in future expectation and hope of him coming and establishing a kingdom that'll last forever, that's known by peace and justice and righteousness. So that's the, that's the first way we see that the, the cross is proof that God's goodness cannot be stopped. The second way that we see it cannot be stopped through the cross is that it cannot be stopped by our struggle with sin. Because maybe, maybe you're sitting here, you heard that first part of the sermon about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Maybe specific sins popped up, something you've been dealing with in addiction for a long time. Maybe it's just the, the weight of shame from sin. 
Man, maybe it's not even something that heinous, but you just catch yourself in constant conflict with the people around you. And if you honestly took a step back and looked, maybe you're the common denominator. Or maybe it's this self-righteousness that as you're talking about sin, you say, man, I'm so glad Jesus came and died for the people who need it. Because me and Jesus didn't need it. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I hear that, Matt. I hear you talk about God's kingdom. I hear you talk about Jesus calling me to serve him. But because of my sin, because of blank, I can't. Man, because of this that I deal with, because of that that I did, because of whatever it is, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Let me just say the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is proof that your struggle of sin is proof exactly that God's goodness can't be stopped. See, Mark gives an uh, uncharacteristic de- detail here. Um, he, he talks about um, Simon being, if you look in verses uh, 21 through uh, 22, 21 and 22, it talks about uh, Mark coming and, and he meets a guy named Simon. And see, if you, all through the Gospel of Mark, he kind of gives not a lot of detail. Mark's kind of the action gospel, this happened, that happened, go here, go here. Not a lot of names drop. Um, there's a good reason why I think uh, he, he put Simon and his sons here is because uh, later on Paul uh, names an Alexander and a Rufus. And I think by the time Mark wrote this eye, eyewitness account, uh, that Simon had become a believer and that even his sons and his household started following Jesus and were serving the church. So I think he put it in there. Um, but neither here nor there. The point is that, that as he's walking, Simon was probably uh, working out in the fields uh, outside of Jerusalem, another word for countryside that Mark uses here. And then as he's coming back in, Jesus is being led out, and he takes the, they take the cross off of Jesus because of everything he had gone through. He had nothing left, and they put it on Simon's back for him to carry the rest of the way for Jesus. And so what we see here is the way that uh, the, the cross is proof that God's goodness can't be stopped despite our struggle with sin, the one who is unable to carry his cross is the one who enables us to carry ours. That's what we see by the cross of Jesus here. Like, like it's not hard when you, when you see this uh, story, right? You, you think about it, uh, you, maybe you think back to Mark chapter 8 where Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must follow me and take up their cross and follow me, right? Anybody remember that? That's okay. If you don't, you can look back. Mark chapter 8, Jesus said that. And see, we, we, you know, like, I remember growing up and uh, hearing, you know, somebody going through a life, a tough life situation, um, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a, a medical um, medical thing or a job thing or, or a tough family situation, and, and you would hear like, well, that's just my cross to bear right now. And, and while, while those things are real and, and tough and, and, and life happens, uh, when Jesus was talking about carrying your cross, it wasn't talking about just handing over tough life situations to him. Uh, what Jesus is doing is he's actually calling us to die. Like Jesus is calling us and asking us to follow him and to go through what he's going through. Okay? Maybe not physical, literal, beaten death, even though that's very common in other parts of the world and all throughout Christian history. But taking up our cross and following Jesus is literally dying to ourselves and coming alive to the reality that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul 
uh, kind of reflects on the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says it this way. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. See, what, what the picture that, that we get right here of Simon taking the cross of Jesus and following him, and then later, we, and we find out through other, other sources of Christian history that, that this Simon became a believer in Jesus. What he's saying here is, God died, your turn. Taking up our cross daily is directly tied to our ability to give up sin for the life that Jesus intends for us to live. Paul goes on a few sentences later in Romans 6 to say, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument for wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. When he talks about an instrument for wickedness, uh, it was pretty common in Roman uh, government policies to talk about the crucifixion, and they called the cross an instrument for wickedness. They called it that on purpose because they knew about the pain and, and the shame that it would bring to people as they hung on the cross outside of the cities. So as people walked in, they had to see the dead people and know who was in charge. So when Paul's saying, hey, don't give up any part of your body as, a, as, an, as, a, as an instrument for wickedness, what he's saying is your job is that whatever part of your life contradicts the will of God for you, it's just got to die. Remember what we said at the beginning is that sin was a foreign object in God's good creation, and it's got to get out. Jesus made that possible through his death on the cross, and daily as we look to the cross and we remember the cross, we can say, okay, Jesus died for my sins. Now I'm going to die to my sins. My sins, they gotta, they got to go. See, we, we can't. We've tried, we've been trying as a humanity, especially since the Enlightenment, we've been kind of taught to believe that humans can do anything we set our mind to and accomplish whatever, but we actually can't kill death and sin on our own, right? I mean, as a culture right now, we have, like, we don't even call it question and answer anymore. We call it question and response because answer connotes that there's, like, some kind of objective truth, right? Have you noticed that lately? It's question and response now. See, like, we can't even define sin as a culture, we have no, like, right and wrong, we, don't, we have no concept. And this is not like angry preacher, like, like, everybody to the minivan, away from the world, like, nothing like that. What I mean is, when I'm talking about, when I'm talking about the world can't define it, what I mean, and I, I drive a minivan, okay, I, I didn't, I, and I grew up in that family, okay, like, oh, they serve beer, well, can't everybody, you know, we'll go try, you know, check it to Ryan's, we'll go to Ryan's, they don't have alcohol. Anyways, different, different thing. I'm, this is where a lot of my self-righteousness comes from, is my family of origin. They're great. Mom, I love you. I know you're watching this morning. Um, wish the microphones quit working. Um, where was I? As a, as a culture, as a world, okay? Like, we've been trying all kinds of ways. Like, we, like, Anyways, I'm not even going to get on the whole live in Mars thing. That's a different conversation around the campfire. AJ and I talk about that a lot. The point is, like, we can't do it. Like, like we think that humans, we can, anything we put our minds to, but, but, but the, the numbers of hospitalizations, of war, of murder, 
of disease, of sickness, they just keep rising. Anxiety, stress, they just keep going out of the roof. We, we, can't, we can't do it on our own. We can't defeat sin and death. We can't die to ourselves. But Jesus dying on the cross, he made it possible for us to do it. Like, like we've been constantly trying since the beginning of humanity, trying to, to refuse to believe that our bodies are decaying by just creating new kinds of fig leaves. That's all we've been doing. And we, we can't escape it, but to carry our cross, we remember that, that death to self is the call of discipleship. And that death, the tomb, has always been a portal to new life and new birth and new things that God's doing in our life. And, and, and when we talk about sin, talking about sin, the reality of sin like, like, we're not fooling anybody. Like, like we said earlier, Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not, like, we're not kidding ourselves here, right? Like, I'm not standing up here acting like I haven't sinned today. You know what I'm saying? Like, I brought my toddler with me this morning, right? Like, that's enough to make you check yourself. I love in 1 John, all through John's letter, he talks about sin, and he gets really serious talking about darkness and sin and the world and stuff, but he always, he never, he never says it, and says it in order to condemn or to, or to keep you there, make you feel terrible. I love that he always talks about sin and he talks about darkness in context of God's love and how it's overcome it, right? Look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. It says, I'm writing this to you so that you do not sin or so that you will not sin. But if, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole world. So let me just say, we shouldn't go out seeking sin. But when we do sin, that's an opportunity to remember that Jesus has paid the price for your sin. And repentance is an act of faith. It's not an act of guilt. It's not an act of shame. Those things are gonna be there, okay? But when we do sin, repentance is an act of faith where we remember what Jesus has done. Because if we feel like we have to get to a certain emotional state, or like internally we have to feel a certain amount of guilt before God will forgive us, that's works-based righteousness. Because John says earlier in 1 John 1 that uh, if anyone confesses their sin, he is faithful and just to forgive their sin. Right? I mean, it's, sin is serious. Hebrews 6 says that if those of us who have tasted the goodness of God, who have experienced and shared in the heavenly blessing, then go on deliberately sinning, it says that we hold Jesus back up, up on the cross for humiliation. But he says, he goes on to say that we have a high priest who gave his life for us so that when we do repent, we're welcome back to the Father's arms. It's the, it's the Father meeting the prodigal son on the road with arms wide open saying, hey, welcome back. Man, I'm ready to give you the blessing. I'm ready to love you. There is no shame. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our struggle with sin and the, the reality of what Jesus did on the cross is proof that his goodness can't be stopped. And then here, here's the third way. Here's the third way that the cross proves that the goodness of God can't be stopped. The third way is that it can't be stopped even when things seem hopeless. Even when things seem hopeless. See, see remember, we look at what the guards are doing. It says that, that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That, that, was, that was basically like, um, like a, a way to ease someone into death, to just go ahead and call it. Like, like, let's just call it, man. Here's some wine with myrrh. 
We'll, it'll, it'll, it'll put you down real quick. He didn't take it. And then they crucified him. They divided up his clothes, and they cast lots to see what he would get. Um, think about what the guards are doing here. Uh, the guards are dividing up his clothes. They're casting lots. They're offering these, these things because in their experience, they've never seen anyone come down from the cross. No one's ever made it out alive. So when they're, when, they're, when they're doing this, this is just common practice for them because they know that guy is not coming down. See, the, the, the guards, here's the irony, though, that I love. Here, here's why this is proof that the goodness of God can't be stopped. The guards dividing up his clothes ironically shows that his kingdom is one of benevolence, healing, and the presence of God is spreading. I think when Mark uh, mentions the close here, uh, not only is it to fulfill Psalm 22, the messianic psalm that talks, of, talks about the crucifixion and, and the beatings of the Messiah and stuff, but I think what he's also doing is using a, a, a literary device um, because he only mentions uh, the clothes of Jesus three times. Okay, this is kind of ancient practice in, in that, that, that culture then uh, to only give certain details in sets of three to give meaning to it. The only three times, uh, let's do uh, interpretation by trivia here for Jesus points, okay? Can anybody remember the three times in the Gospel of Mark Jesus' clothes were mentioned? All right, lady getting healed by touching him, good. The one I just mentioned, Jesus point for you, Jesus point for you. All right, who else? We got one more, one more. Burial clothing in the tomb, that's, that's coming up. Yep, coming up. Spoiler alert, sorry if you guys haven't read it yet. <laughs> the third time was the transfiguration, right? It says that his clothes became dazzling white, okay? Clothes became dazzling white. So, so, so here, here's how these three things kind of flow together. Uh, it said the, the guards dividing up his clothes ironically show that his kingdom is one of benevolence, healing, and the presence of God spreading. It's, it's benevolence because whether they think about it this way or not, the guards are taking his clothes, they're, they're rolling dice to see who gets his clothes, and then what they're going to do with them is they're either going to go and they're going to wash them and they're going to become new clothes for their family. Like remember, there were no stores back then. Clothes were not easy to come by. You were lucky to have more than, if you had more than one change of clothes, you were considered really wealthy, Okay. So for, or, so they were going to have these clothes, they were going to give it to their family member to wear, or they were going to take the clothes and they were going to sell it and then use the money to provide for their family. Okay, so, so without even realizing it, the death of Jesus, them casting lots, taking his clothes, is proof that whether they realize it or not, God's goodness was in their lives. Like God was providing for them in ways they had no idea. The other way is healing, right? The, the, the goodness of, we're talking about the clothes of Jesus. These are most likely because Jesus had, didn't have a place to live, didn't have possessions. He was a traveling, itinerant, prophetic preacher throughout ancient Israel. Right? He's traveling around. There's a good chance that these are the same clothes that that woman touched in order to be healed. That people would line the streets trying to get close enough to Jesus because they knew if I could just touch his clothes, I would be healed. And despite their best efforts, Putting Jesus on the cross, casting lots for his clothes, was proof that they were going to take this, these Roman guards, and take this back to their home, back to their loved ones, the people. And then the, the presence of God was proof because his transfiguration proved, right? He's on the mountain with his disciples. He could have easily skipped 
the death, gone straight to the glorified body after the resurrection, where his clothes became dazzling white, free of stain from the world. Could have skipped all of that. And what they didn't realize, the guards, as they were casting lots for his clothes, they were proving that that goodness, that healing, that glory, the, his goodness that, they, that his disciples saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, they were about to take back into their homes, back into their families. It was going to provide for them. See, the, the, the blessing, the kingdom of God, it can't be stopped. And for us, when we think about why does the cross, what is it like big deal, the resurrection's coming up, we'll party then, and then we'll have a really good time at Christmas. When we think about the cross, we can remember that God's cross, the cross of Jesus, accomplished the mission to bring us close to him, but then it also unleashed his power and his glory to go throughout the world. Christopher Wright says this, ultimately, all that there will be in the new redeemed creation when Jesus comes back will be there because of the cross. And all that will not be there Suffering, tears, sin, Satan, sickness, oppression, corruption, decay, and death will not be there because they have been defeated and destroyed on the cross. In Colossians, Paul said that on the cross, Jesus held up all the powers of sin and darkness, he said, as a spectacle, making fun of them by his death on the cross. So for us, as we think on the cross, as, as, as we come and gather in church and we go through preparing ourselves to worship at the resurrection at Easter, the cross means that we can boldly approach God's throne, that we have been adopted into his family, that we have been redeemed, our lives giving infinite value, not only because we're made in his creation, but because that foreign agent of sin and the outcome of death is no longer an enemy, and we can live with him forever. And so as we think on the salvation that Jesus made possible on the cross, let's just take a minute. We're going to close our eyes. Let's just think maybe something popped up during, during the sermon today, a, a, a sin. Maybe it was a praise. Maybe it was a reality of, man, I've never thought about this good thing being in my life because of the cross, but now we know that it's a reality. Just think on that. Maybe if you're here today and, and hearing this good news of Jesus, knowing that your sin and your death was defeated on the cross, if that for the first time is, is making sense and clicking, you say, wait, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to identify in that death so that I can live a life with him. And you can right now just tell God right there where you are, just say, Jesus, I believe that, and I want to follow you. And I want to give my life to you. And we're going to close today worshiping Jesus, remembering the cross, and praising his name because of all that he accomplished. And then we're going to go out into this world and see how God's worked in our lives and know that even though the cross happened, even though there was death, that new life is coming, that the resurrection happened, and that we can live in the hope and the reality of the goodness of God. So let, let me pray for us, and then we'll stand up and worship. Jesus, we love you so much. We're thankful for who you are, for what you've done in our lives. And Jesus, as, as we prepare ourselves to worship at Easter, as we're in this Lenten season, maybe we've chosen something to fast from. Maybe we've chose to die to a part of our lives 
whatever that is, Father, honor that. God, maybe today we're realizing, man, I've got to give that up. I've got to die to that sin so that I can live for God. God, meet us in that space. And Father, as we prepare to go into Easter and celebrate the resurrection and the good news of Jesus, let it be a reminder for us every day that your mercies are new, that your goodness is with us. And it's all because of what you accomplished through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.